0: Employment Roundtable podcast is produced by the Gable Gotwals Law Firm. The Employment Roundtable is provided for educational and informational purposes only and does not contain legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. The information provided should not be taken as an indication of future legal results. Any information provided should not be acted upon without consulting legal counsel. Welcome to the Employment Roundtable, where we provide you with the perspectives and information you need to make wise employment decisions for your employees and your organization. I'm your host, Talitha Ebright, and I'd like to introduce you to the regular players who will have a seat at our roundtable. We'll begin with Holly Cole from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC. Holly, will you please begin by giving us an overview of the EEOC's function?
1: Sure, and thanks, Talitha, for inviting me here. I think this is an exciting opportunity to talk to a lot of people about current issues in the employment law arena, so thank you for having me. So the EEOC is the federal agency that was created in 1964 when Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And specifically, the EEOC's function was to enforce Title VII, which deals with employment discrimination. Um, So over the years, uh, the EEOC, we now enforce five um, federal anti-discrimination laws, and uh, they prevent discrimination in employment, whether it be in recruitment, advertising, hiring, all the way through maybe discharge, um, prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, Color, national origin, religion, sex, which also includes pregnancy, also includes gender identity and uh, sexual orientation, prohibits discrimination on the basis of age, people 40 or over, people with disabilities, and also uh, prohibits employers from either retaliating against employees, but because they have filed a charge with the EEOC, or for taking into account genetic information on an employee when they're making employment decisions.
0: Thank you so much for that helpful overview, Holly. I don't know how you fit so much into such a short
1: amount of time, but that's Mm -hmm. awesome.
0: Um, And will you tell us a little bit about your role at the EEOC?
1: Sure. So um, I am the area director in Oklahoma City. The EEOC is headquartered in Washington, D.C., but we have 53 field offices all over the country. And um, I'm I'm assuming a lot of you listening today are not from Oklahoma, so if you're curious about where your local EEOC office is located, you can check out EEOC.gov, and that will lo- help you locate your local EEOC office, and it will also provide a huge overview about all of the topics that we're going to be talking about um, in these series. So. I would encourage you to reference that. We're not able to cover you know, in detail everything that we want to convey to you today and through these episodes, but check out eoc.gov if you have questions. Great resource. Thanks, Holly.
0: Um, now, when charges are filed with the EEOC, the EEOC um, interacts with the organizations involved in those charges. Um, isn't that accurate? That's right. That's right. And so will you please walk us through what happens um, when an
1: employee files a charge with the EEOC? Sure. So employees um, who think that they've been victims of discrimination have the right to file a charge of discrimination with the EEOC. And primarily the way that that is um, started now in this pandemic world that we're in um, is they can go online, eoc.gov, and file a charge through our online portal system. Um, and so they have the ability to fill out um, a questionnaire with information about them and schedule an appointment to talk to one of our investigators. And that's really, that's when our investigation starts. Uh, That's the beginning of it. And so then the investigator, the next phase of that investigation, investigator will then contact either the employer, the employment agency, the entity um, against whom the charge has been filed and get their side of the story. Um, and, And sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes the investigation that we conduct at the very outset um, is enough for us to know um, if we could even go forward for you know with it with further investigation? Sometimes employees come to us and they may have a complaint that really doesn't even fall within the scope of the EEOC, and so there's not much further that we could do for them at that point.
0: Um, so now, I and can you talk just a little bit? I mean, you mentioned earlier that uh, the EEOC is responsible for um, enforcing. I think you said how many different
1: five different laws.
0: Five different laws, um, and so I assume that there are some, you know, initiatives that the EEOC is primarily focused on in relation to that enforcement.
1: Can you talk a little bit, a little bit about those primary initiatives? Right, right. Well, um, like like most agencies, um, we have limited resources. We have uh, mm-hmm. you know limited people. A lot more uh, people want our assistance, and you know we can even begin to start with so um, in order to make the smart use smart use of our resources we really do try to focus on those initiatives those issues that have the biggest impact for the broadest amount of people. Um, for instance, some of the things we're looking at right now are eliminating barriers to recruitment and hiring, making sure that um, employers are casting a broad net when they uh, solicit for applications. Um, Another one is protecting vulnerable uh, migrant, immigrant workers. We see that maybe in human trafficking. We may see that in uh, segregation and job classifications. Um, We look at like cutting edge emerging issues also. The LGBTQ community um, and all of the the advances that that have been made to protect um, that community from discrimination. Um, that, That was largely the work of the EEOC. some of the other things we look at are are equal pay. Uh, We hear that uh, a lot, you know, not just for men and women, but for people of color. So those are are some of the things that we look at. And and, and one that's really important is protecting access uh, to the justice system. And what that means is um, people have a right to file a charge of discrimination, either with the EEOC or with their employer. And all of the laws that we enforce prohibit retaliation against people who have asserted their rights. We want to make sure that everybody has a right to be heard. Um, Even if ultimately their their claim doesn't have merit, they still have a right to complain. So we want to protect that. Wonderful. Thank you.
0: Um, Now, as part of the federal regulatory system, I know that the EEOC works closely with other agencies. Um, Will you please explain the intersection between your agency and Um, other agencies like the Department of Labor, the Small Business Administration, um, and Tribal Rights Employment Officers? Sure,
1: sure. And I would want to start with um, some state entities. In most of the states uh, where the EEOC um, operates, we have what's called Fair Employment Practices Agencies. And so those are kind of our state counterparts. And they usually enforce um, that particular state's anti-discrimination laws, but we work in partnership with them. And so we're not um, duplicating efforts and we're sharing resources and that sort of thing. So that's one partnership. Um, The second partnership that you mentioned is the TARO, the Tribal Employment Rights Offices. And in Oklahoma, we have seven recognized TAROs. So we have formal work share agreements with them where we um, collaborate on issues affecting Native Americans and uh, making sure that everyone is is protected from discrimination. And then uh, the three agencies, the three other federal agencies that come to mind, Department of Labor, um, Department of Justice, um, but that's actually two, the only two that come to mind, We have also formal memorandum of understanding with those agencies so that when we encounter situations that impact or that implicate the jurisdiction of the EEOC and the Department of Labor, for instance, um, we have the ability to collaborate on that investigation. We also have the ability to refer uh, situations to each other that fall outside of our our jurisdiction. Um, An example is human trafficking. Sometimes we have situations that involve human trafficking, but then we have to get Department of Justice involved because of the you know, pr- pr- potential criminal activity that might be going on as well.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. And I think um, maybe the other agency you were looking for was the Small Business Administration. Yes. How, how does um, the EEOC intersect with the SBA?
1: Yeah, that, it, that's a neat relationship that has grown um, a lot over the years as we have seen more and more small businesses. Small businesses usually being defined as those with 100 or fewer employees, Um, especially in this economy that we've been in for years now. Um, Small businesses need all the help that they can get um, through what the SBA can provide and then what the EEOC can provide as far as resources. We have a whole section on our webpage that's just geared to tools that can help small businesses um, you know, often we have you know, startup businesses that may not can afford an HR department or in-house lawyer or something like that. And so to be able to provide those employers with assistance to make sure that, you know, they're in compliance with, with everything that's, you know, all the laws that they're supposed to be in compliance with, um, that's a big part of, of what we do for education for those people.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for introducing yourself and explaining about the EEOC. I think it's going to be really helpful to provide some context for our listeners as we move forward with this podcast. Um, I'd also like to introduce Ellen Adams and Paula Williams, uh, two employment law experts um, whom I'm honored to call my partners at Gable Gotwalls. So Ellen is one of our employment practice group heads. Um, Ellen, will you please tell us a little bit about your experience uh, working with employers?
2: Sure. Um, Well, I have the privilege of working with a lot of our clients to um, give them guidance, largely from the EEOC and the great content that their organization puts out to establish best practices for employers to make sure that they're following all of the laws that the EEOC is administering and um, providing that great educational content around. So I work with employers regularly on the front end to make sure that we're complying with all of those laws and engaging in best practices from handbooks to training and the like um, and managing personnel issues as they might arise. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we help employers who receive a notice of a charge that has been filed with the EEOC and help them navigate through what that administrative process and procedure looks like. So. Um, that's that's my relevant experience for
0: the discussion today. Thank you very much, Ellen. Um, now, Paula, um, you also have significant experience serving employers, and you work closely with Ellen, I know. Can you please tell us about yourself and your practice?
3: Oh, I get to tell you all about myself, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I've, I've been, I'm in our labor and employment group. And like you said, work closely with Ellen. I've been at um, our firm Gable Gotwals for gosh, over 10 years now. And Talitha, you actually helped recruit me in, in 2009. So um, have had the pleasure of working with you too. And my practice is very similar to Ellen's. You know, the relevant experience for today is just that that front-end work with employers, best practices, managing personnel situations, and then also, you know, helping employers uh, navigate and respond to EEOC charges. And then also a part of, a big part of Ellen's practice is litigation. If the litigation ends up um, following either filed by the EEOC or filed by the individual, then, uh, you know, we're positioned to, Um, defend the employers in that litigation and a better position to defend them if we've been involved from the personnel stage. Um, But we'll get to those issues and best practices here in a minute, I think. Well, and so that's a great uh, segue. Thank you um, for following <laughs> up. Um,
0: you know, Holly told us a little bit about what it looks like from the EEOC's perspective when a charge is filed by an employee. Can you tell us a little bit about what employers should expect when
3: an employee files a charge with the EEOC? Yeah. So, um, I'll start by saying that when a personnel decision is made, whether it's a, you know a demotion or a termination. Um, or a denial of accommodation, whatever we're talking about, um, a, a change in pay, change in title, I could I could go on and on. Sometimes not a lot happens for a while. And um, employees have 180 days to file this charge with the EEOC, and that can be extended to 300 days if it also violates a state or a local uh, discrimination law. And so in most states, for example, here in Oklahoma, um, they would have up to 300 days to file that. And so when you're an employer, you may get an EEOC charge that's filed on the 300th day, and it's been 10 months since that employment decision, and you're dusting off your file to try to remember who was involved, what happened, and why. And and I think that I wanna point that out because as we talk through best practices, I especially want our employers listening to keep in mind that when you end up in litigation, and if that's when you call an attorney, you may be two years past the the, uh, decision. You know, if the charge is filed on the 300th day and it's with the EEOC to, for six to nine months, and Holly, I don't know what your all timing is now, I've, I've experienced really quick timing um, when a notice of right to sue is given quickly. And sometimes there's investigation and there's a significant process. And so then by the time the lawsuit is filed, of course, uh, they have 90 days to file. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So let me, let me say that a charge is filed with the EEOC up to 300 days after the employer gets that notice of the charge and then is typically afforded um, uh, some time to provide their side of the story to the EEOC. As Holly mentioned, of course, sometimes we do see the EEOC just go ahead and issue that notice of right to sue when the EEOC issues that to uh, a prospective plaintiff or to uh, an employee or former employee, that employee then has 90 days to actually file the lawsuit. And that's an important time period because if they don't file it in that lawsuit, then one of our defenses that we would assert is that they're out of time and that they they didn't get that lawsuit timely filed. Uh, But if that investigation happens and then they're issued a notice of right to sue, by the time they file that lawsuit and then go through a service period where they have a couple months to actually serve the employer – gosh, we are, we are a long ways down the road and the people who made the decisions may not be there anymore and the coworkers may not be there anymore. And the employment history of the person who um, maybe was the alleged harasser, there's a lot more employment history in the file then. And so I say all this to underscore the fact that the employer's uh, job and HR's uh, job from the very beginning, even when the decision is made, as Ellen as talks about uh, best practices here in a minute, is, gosh, we want to make sure that we have those best practices, not just when the EEOC charge is filed, but from the very beginning, because as we've talked about and we will talk about in future episodes, uh, you need to know why you made the decision you made, who was involved. Um, you know, how it compares to your policies and other decisions you've made so that so that you can just remember, especially if it's 18 months down the line and you're trying to piece together all of these facts. So tell me if that answered your question or if no. I, I
0: No, yeah. it does absolutely. And I think what it does um really helpfully is kind of just present the challenge that employers are faced with, you know, um in that in the course of that timeline. So Ellen, um as Paula forecasted for us, I think what then becomes important is understanding, you know, what it, what would you, your ideal client situation. What would you want your clients to do after receiving notice that a charge has been filed with the EEOC and before they they uh, bring you in to to get involved with that? Sure.
2: Um, well, it really depends on the client. Some clients are are small and, like Holly said, might not have an internal HR department, might not have experience handling charges. And for a client in that situation, if you've never been through the process before, I would encourage them to contact counsel before they do anything. Just get a lay of the land and let's figure out together what the right next steps are. So um, I think that would probably be my, my first suggestion For clients who might have more resources or more experience in dealing with this, the questions I'm going to ask when they pick up the phone and call me are, um, do you have employer's practices liability insurance? So do we need to make a claim on your insurance policy because of this charge? So let's cover that as first grounds. And then the second thing I would start asking is just about the facts. And what documents do they have that relate to those facts? We're gonna get a document preservation, what's commonly called a litigation hold out the door very promptly. But when I receive an EEOC charge, I immediately start thinking one, about possibility of mediation and two, about um, responding uh, given the EEOC's guidance and what they expect to see in what we commonly refer to as a statement of position, which is the employer's opportunity to present their side of the story. And the EEOC has really um, communicated the expectation that those SOPs, statements of position, are are fact-specific. So, you know, my focus is on getting as many facts as I can to demonstrate that the employer's practices were consistent with the requirements of the law, and so that's kind of my my mindset and approach, but there's never you can never call your lawyer too early. <laughs> you can call your lawyer too late. So I would say, if there's any doubt, pick up the phone. Um, but if you do have experience, I'm going to want to know what does your insurance look like? And can we get a document hold together as quickly as possible? and then what facts? Who are my key witnesses and where are my documents? Um, and so if they can muster some of that internally at the beginning, that's wonderful. Um, but I, you know, call call a lawyer.
0: <laughs> Don't wait. <laughs> when in doubt, pick up the phone.
2: Um, you, I like it. I feel that. like there should be a 1-800-call-a-lawyer number displayed on our uh, podcast that connects you directly to Paula. I like it. It feels
0: like, like, sort of like better call Saul, but like, I don't know, we could come up with something. But actually an ethical. Right, 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 right. Right.
3: Like, or Ellen. (laughs) If I can just piggyback off of Ellen's um, response, something else that we will see in in the EESC stage is we'll get an initial charge filed. And then if the employer isn't aware of the risk of retaliation and what that means and what can draw a retaliation claim, then we'll get another charge for retaliation for filing the first charge when they're a current employee. So let's say they were, you know, denied their request for accommodation and they're still in the workplace. um, And then all of a sudden they feel like they're being treated differently because they went and they reported to the EEOC. And so that's that's another little best practice that I would add to, to my question about what employers can expect. And one of the things they can expect is that um, if they're, if it's a current employee, uh, you know, they're, well, and if they're, you know, no longer an employee, it still, still carries, but you have to make sure that not just HR, but your supervisors and your managers know that they cannot treat that person differently, that they have a protected right to go to the EEOC. And if they treat them differently, they're going to draw a retaliation claim. And as we're interviewing witnesses, we make sure that they know too, that they're not going to be retaliated against for talking to us, for giving us those facts that then we need to give to the EEOC and help the employer evaluate that claim. Thanks, Paul. I think that's
0: a super important point. And uh, and I'm really glad that you Uh, That you brought that up. Um, Well, that is all the time we have for today. Uh, I just want to thank the three of you, Holly, Paula, and Ellen, for joining me today, for introducing yourselves. Um, I'm really excited about what we have planned for this season. Um, It's been a pleasure learning from you and about you. Um, And I look forward to learning a lot more from you this season um, about important issues facing employers and best practices. Thank you to our listeners for tuning into the Employment Roundtable. Please join us next time as we begin the first of a four-part series about absenteeism in the workplace. The Employment Roundtable podcast is produced by the Gable Gottwalds Law Firm. The Employment Roundtable is provided for educational and informational purposes only and does not contain legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. The information provided should not be taken as an indication of future legal results. Any information provided should not be acted upon without consulting legal counsel.